morning, open up in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, and our scripture reading this morning is going to be from verses 9 through 14. Yes, we are beginning an Advent series. might feel odd to begin an Advent series with Colossians chapter 1, but you'll get it in a second. Colossians 1 verse 9. Paul writes, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll be seated. Father, thank you for... the hope of the gospel, the confidence of the gospel, that you have transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Pray that that hope and confidence would come home sweeter today as we meditate on what once was pray that we would be people filled with joy this Christmas season, not because we're told to, but because we just can't help it. That it would be an overflow of our rich meditation on the gospel this this Christmas season. Pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church, and you can all be seated. All right, so I want to begin by looking a little bit at this prayer of Paul's. Um, This prayer is the context within which we're going to think about some particular details. So let's get the context a little bit in our heads um, before we dive into the particulars of what we're doing here for an Advent series. Paul prays his main prayer. You can see it up there in verse 9, that we would be filled with knowledge. Why? So that we would be fully pleasing. Filled with knowledge. That we would know God's will in fullness so that we would bear fruit in fullness in our life. That's Paul's prayer. And what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, Paul gives us four descriptions, really, that follows that. What does it mean to live a life fully pleasing, a life worthy of our calling in Christ? He gives us four descriptions. You'll see it there in the text. First, we're bearing fruit in every good work. Fruitfulness. Second, we're increasing even more in knowledge of God. So he's praying that we would know God, God's will more and more so that we would live a life that's increasing in knowledge of God's will and, and in God himself. Third, he prays that we would live a life that is enduring with joy. And fourth, that we would give thanks to the Father. Therefore, 
Paul is praying for our joy this Christmas. You see it there in the text? He's praying for our joy this Christmas. We sing songs about joy at Christmas. Our culture loves to talk about joy at Christmas. Where does joy come from? It's not a mere sentimentality. It's, it's not something that can just be, just be conjured up out of nowhere. It, it, it is something that needs to be grown from the gospel. Joy is not something that's fleeting, something that goes in at one season and out at another. It is the ground of what Paul's praying for is endurance. It's the joy that characterizes the endurance. Joy is permanent. It's something that lasts in a Christian. And yet it is something that Paul's praying we would have more of. The sort of joy that is humble, hopeful, happy. Not in mere situation, but in our situation in Christ. In what it means to belong to him. What it means that we have been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. So how, how does he get us to grow in joy? He, he pushes us in a direction here. How does he, where does he push us? How does he get us to grow? How are we supposed to get more joy this Christmas season? Well, Paul tells us a story. He tells us a story, admittedly a, a rather short story, or at least a compressed story, but he tells us a story. Look at verses 12 through 13. Where are we supposed to get this endurance and patience with joy? Where are we supposed to grow in our thankfulness to the Father? We're supposed to meditate on the story. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life or in light. That's our end result. How do we get there? Verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of of his beloved son. Paul tells us a two-part story. And what we're doing for this two weeks of Advent, this week and next week, is we're dealing with each part of those story, that story in turn. So this week is going to be a dark sermon, a grim reality, with a beacon of hope at the end. And next week, we'll meditate more fully on the goodness of what it means to be transferred into that kingdom of Christ. Why would we delve back into the darkness of the past? Doesn't that seem so counterintuitive? Why would we go there? Well, the nerd in me wants to say because, as Tolkien would describe, J.R.R. Tolkien, he came up with a word called eucatastrophe. You guys know what catastrophe means? A sudden turn for the bad. Things are going really good, and then wham, everything falls apart. Tolkien described a good story as that which does a you catastrophe. You being the prefix for good. It has this moment where everything seems to be going terrible, where darkness is engulfing us, where we're about to cave and fall and die, and it has the light suddenly break through. Tolkien says this about that reality. He says, the sudden happy turn in a story that pierces you with joy. You've all experienced that, right? Things are grim. Maybe an author, maybe a movie, maybe a song paints the seriousness of our reality in grim terms. Not so that you would wallow in despair, but so that you would feel the joy 
of the you catastrophe, that sudden change for good. And that's what I, that's what I hope this morning. As we meditate on the darkness of what it meant to be in the domain of darkness, that that, that would lead to a sweetness, not a moroseness. That it would lead to a, a growth in your joy. That's the goal this morning. And so part one here, Rob will pick up next week with part two. Part one here is the dark before the dawn. And specifically, we're getting our, our clue from chapter 1, verse 13 of Colossians, and that phrase, the domain of darkness. So as we begin, let's, let's just think about that title in of itself. A domain. Domain speaks, speaks of kingdom. It speaks of a realm ruled by something. It's a ruling power. What's the ruling power in which we once lived? Darkness. Darkness. We, we lived under the domain, the rule, the power of darkness before Christ's light shone. One commentator put it this way. People who have not been rescued by God in Christ live in a power structure that is characterized by the forces of chaos, evil, and judgment. It's a domain of darkness. We're ruled by it. We're ruled by this wicked, evil, dark reality called sin. And so while I'm going to deal with this domain of darkness in the present tense— trying to get us to feel ourselves back in that place. Recognize with me that we're talking in the past tense. This is no longer where you are if you are in Christ. You have been transferred. But for the sake of affecting our hearts, getting us to see again and feel again the reality of what it means to be ruled by darkness, let's press in as if it once again is our reality. Let's think through it as if it's our present state and down in verse 21, we didn't read it in our text because it would have got too long, but I'm going to take as our cue for our meditation an, an elaboration of what Paul means here by the domain of darkness in verse 21. Paul, Paul gives us three descriptions, three descriptions, I think, that are characterizing, describing what this domain is. He calls it, in verse 21, alienation hostility in mind, doing evil deeds. Three descriptions. Alienation, hostility in mind, doing evil deeds. Paul gives us an external reality connected to an internal reality. And so our two points this morning as we meditate on this domain of darkness in which we once lived and were ruled, let's first look at the darkness without, the external darkness, and then we'll look at the darkness within. So let's, let's think firstly, we're reversing order here. I figured that would help us feel fresh. You guys have heard this, so we're going to make it fresh by going backwards. We're going to start on the external. Start with the phrase, doing evil deeds, or literally in evil deeds. What is this life under the rule of darkness? What, what is that characterized by? Well, well, Paul leads us to consider first here our bad behavior. Now, I want to 
ask a question, and I think this is an interesting test case. What comes to your mind when you hear the phrase evil deeds? What are the deeds that fill in that description? Are they war crimes? Terrorism? Sexual deviancy? Drunken violence? Those are certainly evil deeds. There's, there's an obviousness about those evils. Even the world, by and large, would label them as dark. But consider with me, turn, turn back in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Consider with me a description of, of evil, of unrighteousness, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, 29 through 31. Paul's point here in this passage is really to drill home to all of us, Gentiles and Jews alike, that we are all needing the grace of Christ. We are all guilty. And so he paints a broader uh, stroke of evil than what we typically classify in our minds, I think. What, what are these evil deeds we are ruled by in the domain of darkness? Paul says in verse 29 of Romans 1, they were filled, not just a little bit, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Takes us from the normal things we would characterize as evil deeds, right? Some of those are very much listed in here. And he takes us down to the ordinary, seemingly subtle, seemingly kind of uh, sensible or agreeable sorts of misbehaviors. The gossip. Tearing down one another with slanderous words. Disobedience to parents. I'll just insert authority. We were in Titus this morning, and it called us to be submissive to our governing authorities. Paul, Paul is painting a picture of a full, unrighteous reality. Now, you, you might not have experienced some of these depths, at least not in their expression, right? You may never have murdered somebody. You may never have committed adultery. You may not be guilty of some of the gross misdemeanors that you might witness in our culture. But you were ruled by evil deeds. In your behavior, you were governed, governed towards wrong. And it showed up in all sorts of ways, subtle and unsubtle. And so we, we turn on the news, right? You turn on the news and you see some really gross ones, some gross evils, and your heart is broken because of it. And then you drive on the highway and somebody cuts you off. What an evil. And then you say something under your breath. What an evil. You sit at your family dinner table and your two-year-old daughter, hi, Eleanor, is disobeying you directly and anger comes out of your heart. What evils? 
You take an account of your own actions today and you see the residual effect of this dominion of sin. We were under the domain of darkness. This is, this is not pessimism from the Apostle Paul. This is a foundational fact of human existence. I was really struck this week as I was reading some different resources to get my head around what would be helpful to bring up here. Uh, I came across an author who put two quotes from the you guys Are you familiar with H.G. Wells? He was an author um, back around World War II, you know, back in that day. Um, and he wrote some really famous novels that are, are worth your read. They're, he's very philosophical, um, very into scientific advancement, things like that. Very much a definition of a, of a secular intellectual man. And just, I just want to read two quotes with you to, to show the proof of what Paul is saying, or to, to, to double down on what Paul is saying. First, H.G. Wells was quoted in 1937 saying this. So notice the date, 1937. Pre-what event? War. Can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations? That it will achieve unity and peace and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know. What man has done, the little triumphs of the present state, form but a prelude to the things that man has yet to do. Very optimistic. Very optimistic. They came off of World War I, society started gaining peace again, economy started building again, and you had a growth again in this sort of optimism. And then the world plunged back into chaos. And he was quoted again in 1946 saying, man, we have sympathy on this, don't we? The cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment, and the fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. What did H.G. Wells come to see? What did he come to see? He had an enlightenment of a different sort, an enlightenment to the darkness of the human condition. As it turns out, his prophecy was true. What man has done in the past will govern what he does in the future. What he was wrong in seeing was that the past was a a progression towards good. Rather, the past was characterized by evil. And that it would continue to characterize our humanity unless something happened. Sin's darkness, sin's blinding effect has led to all manner of chaos and evil in our world. How, How do we account for this darkness? Now, I just want to belabor this because it's tempting to us to point to things that aren't actually the problem and therefore lead away from the solution, but it's especially tempting for those who did not grow up around this kind of doctrine. They've been fed a whole bunch of unhelpful answers to man's problem, and and part of our witness, part of our love, is to go to them and point out the real problem. And so how do, how do people account for this darkness, this pervasive darkness, this, this darkness of evil that just seems all around us continually? 
Well, mostly, people want to point to external influences. If you just pay attention to what the world says about things, you'll get things like, well, there's bad role models. Maybe there's a lack of parental involvement. Maybe there's a father missing. Maybe there's uh, parents that fight a lot. Or maybe there's problems in the home in that way. There's bad role models. Maybe there's rough friendships. You know, kids are growing up in, in, a, in a culture that promotes gang violence and all sorts of stuff. Rough friendships. Maybe it's a, a, a lack of education. If only people could get, you know, uh, get educated with a, an optimism and with the skills to produce good, then they would. Maybe it's, you know, poverty and the way that it causes depressed neighborhoods to produce violence. Now, I, I don't want to demean the fact that all of these have a play in advancing or giving, giving, giving space for our evilness, our evil to express itself. And I certainly don't want to belittle the people who are seeking to, to work on those problems. I think that's a good to work against those problems. However, they are not the actual problem. External problems can be solved by human intervention. You get new role models, you get new friends, you get better education, you get less poverty, you get better public morality. You get a culture that upholds more moral structures, and guess what? You still have evil. It doesn't take it away. If, if man is morally neutral, you would think a change in external factors would cause solutions. And it doesn't. I mean, just, just consider a silly example that I was thinking through. If you, if you stick 30 people into a room and you tell them to operate in that room with pitch black darkness, what's going to result? Well, you're going to get some bumps and some bruises. You'll probably get some bad language. You might even get a brawl or two. Why? Well, some of it is because we just naturally can't see in the dark. But there's more going on there, isn't there? It's that when we get bumped, we have assumptions. We have anger. We have evil flowing out of us. If people were essentially goodwill, they would get bumped in that dark room and they would go, oh, my bad, you're bad, oh, it's fine. But that's not what happens when we offend each other. We fight. We hate. We hurt. Scripture has a better answer for us than simply situational problems. It takes us deeper to a far more troubling and therefore far more powerful consideration. Two texts. Proverbs 4.23 Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the spring of life. Jesus, in Matthew 12.34, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The, the rule of darkness does not simply produce bad behavior. The rule of darkness is over our inner self as well. Humanity suffers from a heart that is ruled by darkness. We don't just do evil by necessity because of the situation we find ourselves in. We do evil because we want it. Because we have a natural desire toward it. The, the Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, puts it this way. 
If, if there is so much goodness in us since the fall, as some say, why is there not as much natural proneness to good as there is to evil? Our experience tells us that the natural bias of the soul is to that which is bad. Even the pagans, by the light of nature, see this. That's not pessimism. That's dealing with fact in front of our faces. Why do we do evil deeds? Paul gets at it in two expressions. So let's turn now to the inner dynamic, the darkness within. The darkness without flows from somewhere, and that is what's within. So let's back up in Paul's logic. One one more step and two more steps. First, Paul says, we do evil deeds because we are hostile in mind. Hostile in mind. We do evil because we have an internal problem. This is so basic for us, but it's so essential for us to come back and meditate on these truths. We do evil because we have something going on on the inside. We have, as Paul would call it, hostility of our mind. Now that word hostile literally means the attitude of an enemy. That's what, how the Lexham English Bible translates it. They say the enemy of, in, edim, we are enemies in attitude. It's the idea of hatefulness, of contrariness, of against something. And, and notice the location of this hostility. Pa- Paul means for us to see our evil deeds are not just flowing out of instinct or reflex. Lo- notice where he locates the problem. We're hostile in mind. Hostile in mind. Somebody might say, if only we could slow down a moment and think things through, certainly we would behave better. And Paul's answer is no. Your thinking is the problem. You hate and you are in hostility. Therefore, you act. Even in our natural sinful state, we are still thinking beings. That's an implication here, right? We're still thinking. But the problem is is that our processing, our planning, our discerning of situations, our developing of solutions are all controlled by darkness. We plan destruction. We draw battle plans against one another. We develop cynical theories about each other's motives. We are thinking And our thinking leads to action. Sin has not so much broken our mental abilities, although it has tainted them, but it has darkened our mental desiring. We don't want the right things. Therefore, we interpret things wrong, and we provide wrong solutions. This is really at the root of why we treat each other so poorly, or at least it's getting to the root. Why is it that we have racist actions in our culture? It's not simply because of education problems. It's because human beings are in hostility with one another. It's a part of our nature. Why is it a part of our nature? Because of who our hostility ultimately is toward. It's not just toward one another. It is toward someone else. We do evil toward one another because we hate life himself. Our hostility of mind is not simply against other creatures, but more fundamentally against the creator. 
Again, Thomas Goodwin is helpful. Man has a desire to be happy, yet opposes that which should promote happiness. Man has a desire to be happy. It's still within us to want happiness, and yet our very nature is driving us against the very thing that would bring it. How do we oppose that which should bring and promote happiness? We make war against the God of life. If the heart is the wellspring of our life, as Proverbs and Jesus tell us, then we have a deep, fundamental problem. Our hearts war against life himself. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. I don't know how you can get clearer than this. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot The mind in the flesh is hostile to God. It does not want to submit to God. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You notice the statement of inability there. We are in hostility because we are unable to do anything other. We cannot do what God wants because we do not want God's way. We are in hostility. We are against him. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Why do we not want to do things God's way? Because we think he's foolish. We think his way is dumb. We like our way. Our whole disposition towards life is against what he has designed as life. We are going the opposite direction. This, this hostility that we see poured out on others is really a hostility that's grown in our hostility to God. But this this hostility doesn't just go from us to God. It goes from God to us. Ephesians 1.3 By nature, we were all children of wrath. Children of wrath, our identity was that we were sitting under the judgment of God. We were his enemies. We suppress the truth about God. We actively dishonor him, so God in his wrath darkens and judges us. Romans 1, 24-25, Therefore God gave them, all those Gentiles, us, God gave them up, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Consider Isaiah 63.10. Will pointed me to this this morning. Thank you, Will. But they rebelled speaking of Israel, and grieved his Holy Spirit. How did God respond? Therefore he turned to be their enemy, and he himself fought against them. The hostility that Paul is talking about as we are under the domain of darkness is a two-way street. It's a hostility of us to God. We do not want to submit, and it's a hostility of God to us. God does not 
let sin go unjudged. He is pure holiness. No unrighteousness can be admitted. Another good quote from Thomas Goodwin. We should read Puritans more. There is a rooted enmity in the will against holiness. It is like an iron sinew. It refuses to bend to God. Where then is the freedom of the will? When it is so full, not only of wrong disposition and opposition to what is spiritual. That riff between us on a horizontal, horizontal level, the reason we can't by nature get along with each other is because there is a chasm on the vertical plane. We are in rebellion against our God. And so we ask, why such hostility to God? Why, why would man be so foolish as to war against life himself? Why do we get it so wrong by nature? Hostility, this is essential, hostility to God is only possible where the true knowledge of God has been replaced by lies. Why do we not want to do what God wants? Why do we not love God? Because we do not believe him to be lovable. Why would we feel that way about him? Because, taking another step back, deeper into our hearts, we are alienated from him. We do evil deeds, not because of situations primarily, but because of our disposition. We are in hostility. Why are we in hostility? We'll take the next step back. We are alienated. That, that word Paul uses there, alienation, talks about foreignness, separation, that we are estranged from God, and therefore by implication from one another. It's the word Paul uses in Ephesians 2.12 when he talks about how the Gentiles were separated from Israel's covenant of promise. We were apart. We were not associated with. We had nothing to do with. We were alienated from that plan of redemption. Ephesians 4.18, and Paul uses it to describe our alienation, and this is the more particular one here, from the life of God. Just as the Gentiles were separate from the Jews until they were in Christ, so we are alienated from the life of God of God. God is, by definition, that which is most lovable. He is the source of life and light itself. And so, at the core of what does it mean to be wrapped up in this domain of darkness is the fact that to be separated, to be alienated from God, is to be away from the light. And in this darkness, mankind believes all sorts of lies, all sorts of false things against God. We believe some different forms, some way or another, of the serpent's lie in the garden. What did the serpent present to Eve? Did God really say? Which 
we can take to mean, is God telling the truth? Did he really have your best interest in mind? Does obedience to him actually bring life? Or is he actually holding you back? That's what our hearts tell us, isn't it? When we're in sin, we believe lies. That's why we act the way we act. That's why we feel the way we feel. Because of the lies that we are darkened to believe. Alienation. Separation. Leads to hostility. Which leads to evil deeds. I love this logic with Paul. It's so helpful. Think about it even on a society level. Just simply on a horizontal level, the logic stands so well. Why do we have racist actions? Because we have racist attitudes. Why do we have racist attitudes? Because when we're separate from people, we fear them. Don't we? We fear what is other. We believe lies about what is other. So if you grew up in a, in a, in a situation where the person that's coming into your path now feels so foreign that you just can't believe truth about them, how are you going to treat them? Lies. This is how we deal with every issue in our life. Why, why is it that I can say such mean things to my wife sometimes, or have mean attitudes sometimes to my wife? Because I'm believing false things. I'm giving in to lies, and you are too. This is so helpful for us in backing us up to the depths of what does it mean to be trapped in darkness. But it doesn't just stay on that horizontal level. All of that is stemming from the vertical, from the fact that we are separate from God in our sin, from the fact that in our separation from God in our sin, we believe lies about him and therefore hate what he loves and love what he hates because our foolish hearts are darkened. And in that darkness of our hearts, we act by nature. This is who we were. This is what characterized our life. We were under the domination of darkness. Sin had a hold on us to such an extent that from our very essential core to our most external actions, we were under its power. We not only couldn't see light, we didn't want to see light. And that is the reality into which the light of the world comes. I'm going to transition us now to think about communion. And I want to do so first... The elders can start coming up. I suppose that would be fine. Um, I want to do so first by quoting some of the lyrics from that song we sang right before the sermon. Let all mortal flesh keep silent. Is that the title? Listen to the story that this song tells for us. King of kings, yet born of Mary. As of old on earth he stood. Lord of lords, in human vesture, in the body and the blood. What are we symbolizing in this cup in front of us? We are symbolizing that the light came in and took on our flesh. We are remembering 
him uniting himself to our nature. The song goes on, He will give to all the faithful his own self for heavenly food. When we remember the gospel story in the communion elements, the fact that the Son of Light came into our darkness to break its dominion over us. When we celebrate that, we are feeding our joy. You want joy this Christmas? I want joy this Christmas. I don't want to go through and find myself a week after going, ah, I kind of missed it. I want joy this Christmas, but I don't want joy this Christmas. Just this Christmas. I want joy enduring. I want a joy that pushes me to be in that sort of state of mind at all times so that I can walk in a manner worthy of my Savior. And how are we going to do it? How are we going to do it? Paul's leading us in this text to preach the bad news to our hearts over and over and over and over again. May it never get old to hear with new shades of meaning and with new levels of depth just how dark we were before Christ broke in. Because the deeper that darkness gets in our hearts, the brighter his light's going to shine and the greater our joy is going to grow.